Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Here we go. So this is a talk for the drug and recovery channel of the New Book Network. My name is Rachel Stewart. And today I am interviewing Michael Racino, who's come to talk to us about his book, Debating the War on Drugs. Um, Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael? Absolutely. So I am an assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College. Uh, I this is actually my first year as an assistant professor, so it's been a little bit surreal doing all this remotely. Um, I just finished up my PhD. Um, my research focuses broadly on racial politics, uh, media, and questions around policy and democracy more broadly. And uh, I've, I've long been interested in, in drug policy specifically. I think like a lot of people, I kind of grew up noticing the inconsistencies in how different substances were treated, um, the inconsistency in terms of like the evidence and how it resulted in policies. Um, and so that has always given me kind of a fascination with trying to understand the relationship between things like racial politics, mass media, and drug policy. And so that's kind of what what drove me to write this book. Okay, so who's your intended audience? This book is kind of intended for a few different audiences. Um, It is written in a way that I think uh, researchers, sociologists, scholars will find relevant and interesting. it's also written in a way that's meant to be accessible to the general public. So I try to break down all of the concepts really clearly. Um, I try to give tons and tons of examples in the book. It's also intended for use in the classroom. So if, if, if anyone is teaching a class on anything from public policy, drugs and society, social problems, even criminology or, or racial and ethnic studies, um, it includes a glossary, it includes discussion questions. So it's also designed to be really accessible for students. So pretty wide audience. I also hope that practitioners and and people who are personally involved with issues around um, drug use and drug policy will will pick it up as well. Yeah, I mean, I've got a criminology background myself. I'm I'm used to uh, lecturing and leading modules. And I found that it was re- it was a really helpful guide. I mean, for somebody, perhaps for someone who's got some background knowledge, but is just getting to the point where they're about to delve deeper, that reference to some of the kind of heavyweights of the drug war debate were really useful. So, you know, um, the, the context that you put um, the book within sort of like wider sociological debates around Becker and all the other people, the heavyweights, but also as well, you're referencing to... to um, to the, uh, Michelle Alexander and the um, the new Jim Crow was really helpful as well. I thought it really put it into context. So, so with that in mind, can you talk um, talk about the notion of sociological mindfulness in the context of your book? Absolutely. 
Um, so sociological mindfulness is a concept that um, has been around for quite a while. It kind of is an expansion on this concept that a lot of people encounter, whether they're like, particularly in maybe like an intro to sociology class, which is the sociological imagination. This is basically the idea that, you know, part of what sociology allows people to do is examine the relationship between history and biography. So the example that I give to my students a lot of times for sociological imagination is, you know, a lot of people read the diary of Anne Frank um, when they're growing up and that's someone's autobiography. And if you could imagine reading that book without understanding the historical context of the Holocaust and World War II and the rise of the Nazi regime, um, it would be a very confusing book. You probably wouldn't necessarily think about why, you know, we should be concerned with the life of some random teenager. Um, and you might not even understand why they're trapped or why they can't go downstairs when they're in the attic or by putting uh, people's experiences, their lived experiences in the context of the social uh, and historical issues that are going on it allows us to better understand them. Sociological mindfulness uh, takes that one step further. It comes from a sociologist named Michael Schwalbe. And basically what it concerns itself with is not only understanding the world in a different way, but applying that understanding to our everyday life. So kind of drawing on this concept from, from Buddhism and philosophy of mindfulness um, and, you know, even in the conclusion of the book, I really want to emphasize to readers that it's not just enough to know all these little facts and tidbits and trivia about the war on drugs, but to really contemplate some ways that our everyday practices, how we even how we talk and think about uh, drug policy can have really major implications and impacts on the world. So I, I find sociological mindfulness to be a very empowering con, uh, concept uh, because it does connect back to the fact that we're not just products of the social world, we're also producers of the social world. And if we can have a more mindful uh, role to play in that, that's obviously going to improve society. Okay, so you described the, the war on drugs as a contested issue. What do you mean by this contested issue? Essentially, what I'm getting at by saying it's a contested issue is that I think that you could go into just about any uh, room and talk to people about drug policy specifically or about the war on drugs, and there, it is likely to start a debate. Uh, it is something that is heavily debated in the media. Um, there are constant uh, opinion uh, op-eds being written about the war on drugs. There are constant discussions about drug policy and, and you know whether or not our drug policy is effective and how it can be reformed and what are the best ways to deal with social problems relating to um, drugs in society. And because it's such a heavily contested issue, it, it's not only discussed very frequently, but there is an overall sort of uh, debate. There's a larger conversation. There's this huge public conversation that people can look at and analyze and understand. 
Um, so what I mean by saying it's a contested social issue is basically it's something that people are constantly debating and talking about, but also that it, it has some, there's some patterns, there's some patterns in the debate. And so that's why I not only see it as a contested issue, but it's a racialized contested issue. Um, because there's, there's some pretty distinct patterns in racial meaning making that are also taking place in this contestation about the war on drugs. Yeah, so do you, want to, do you want to expand on that a little bit, just for, for people that may not be as familiar with this, this concept as you and I are? Absolutely. So from the, the inception of, of uh, drug prohibition policies, particularly in the United States, but I think this is a, a pattern that can be traced to multiple contexts, including Europe uh, particularly, um, drug prohibitions have always been associated with some type of racist moral panic uh, that is associating a particular uh, group, usually a marginalized group, or usually a non-white group, with a particular substance. And that has been part of how their uh, drug policies have been rationalized and justified. It's also how many drug policy enforcement efforts have become targeted towards specific communities rather than others. Um, so even just going back to the earliest drug prohibitions in the United States in 1875, um, there was a, the first drug prohibition was in San Francisco, California, and it was about prohibiting uh, people from entering opium dens. It was enforced in a racially biased way that was intended to target uh, Chinese immigrants. This was during a, a time of an early uh, wave of Chinese immigration to the United States. And it corresponded with a lot of um, racist fears around the idea that Chinese immigrants couldn't fully assimilate into American culture, that they were uh, taking over, that, you know, a lot of the same kind of narratives and discourses we see around immigration today, and even a lot of the narratives and discourses we see around the really tragic um, Asian uh, hate crimes and violence that are being seen in various parts of the world. Um, so even just from that one example, we can see how it's really difficult to disentangle conversations about drug policy, the social problems associated with drugs, and um, an enforcement strategy or a, or a strategy for dealing with some of those problems and issues, it's very difficult to disentangle that from the ongoing legacy of racial oppression and racial inequality. And I think that holds true even today, even if we don't want to go back super far to even, you know, the 1980s and a lot of those uh, discourses that led to the war on drugs really becoming a big uh, government program uh, that's international and has a military backing. Um, and so this connection has meant that this contestation, this argument always has this racial meaning uh, mapped onto it. It's always uh, in relation to um, issues of race, racism, and racial inequality, even if it's not uh, right at the forefront and center at all times. Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting as well. Um, it's not just the the war on drugs, but it's the absence of the war against certain types of drugs that's really striking as well, isn't it? So, I was thinking about the kind of um, the impact that uh, uh, that that kept you know sort of um, manufactured narcotics is having in America. Um, 
but that that's not you know is that in your experience is that included in the war on drugs or is that sort of like somehow pushed to one side it's not seen as a sort of uh, necessarily a sort of like a theater of war it's seen as something else i think that there is essentially a double standard there's a two-tiered um approach that that i've i've seen and, and other um researchers like carl hart have talked about this um but i i it's been laid out i think pretty clearly with a few different examples but if, if we even just wanted to trace it back to let's say the 1980s and and the rise of the so-called crack epidemic in the united states where there was a lot of concern around the uh use of crack cocaine in predominantly black low-income communities, um, there was immediately a double standard, and we can see this double standard throughout history. Even with like, you know, if, even if we wanted to go back to like the early days of cocaine becoming uh, illegal or regarded as a dangerous drug, that there were wealthy white people in the United States who were using cocaine tooth drops or consuming uh, cocaine-laced wines to unwind at the same time that there was a an idea that cocaine is making um, Black people aggressive. Um, so there's always been this double standard, and I actually argue in the book that it reflects sort of a different emotional relationship between the, uh, the government or, or authority figures and the population at large. So one is this punitive peer that is tier that is largely reserved for people that are regarded as drug criminals. It tends to be a tier that is reserved largely for low-income uh, Black and Latino communities in the United States, um, broadly, you know, marginalized communities in, in other contexts uh, on the basis of ethnicity and social class. At the same time, we have this other tier, which is all about treatment, uh, which is all about the idea of addiction and the idea of people being drug addicts or people who um, have a lot of potential and promise who, you know, that potential and promise is disrupted by potentially getting caught up in the criminal justice system. One of these tiers is marked by empathy and concern and, you know, very much humanizing the uh, people who are involved. And one of them is about uh, social control and the use of violence and containment and punishment. Um, and those two different tiers are mobilized to different communities on the basis of how much social, political, and economic capital they have. Um, and I think that's something we can, we can see. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes people ask when I'm talking about drug policy reform, um, you know, what would happen if we were to reform drug policies and, and have greater decriminalization and focus more on education and treatment, um, you know? And basically what I argue is that in a lot of contexts and in a lot of societies, we already have that. It's just only reserved for elites. It's only reserved for people who have the resources and the influence to access those types of programs and care and um, you know, they don't face the same kind of consequences and risks. Um, so yeah, I think you're absolutely correct in that, you know, there are these two different parallel strategies. And, um, you know, even when you look at the opioid epidemic, 
uh, that took place in, you know, in the United States over the past few, few uh, decades, um, whether it's prescription opiates or heroin use, um, there's research, for instance, that, um, you know, drugs that are used to treat uh, people who potentially overdose are more likely to be given to white people than people of color. Um, so even that type of recognition of like whose lives are worth saving, um, I think plays into this. There's a giant uh, racial empathy gap in terms of the treatment of different um, racial groups uh, in, these, in this uh, drug policy uh, system. But also as well, there's a kind of like, there's a kind of gap in the knowledge, a gap in the discussion about the harms that, that the sort of like say the replacement drugs do. You know, like say, for example, mm -hmm. methadone, I, you know, I interviewed a, a street woman when I was doing some interviews with like street level sex workers. And she said that she she was devastated because she if somebody told her that methadone would make her lose her teeth, she would never have she would never have like, you know, got on the, the script for methadone and consequently, mm -hmm. you know, gone through all the uh, the negatives that's associated with that. Um, you know, and there's obviously there's there's alternatives to methadone as well, like sort of, sort of like subatex and stuff like that. That's not that's not necessarily offered. So, you know, there's this kind of on one hand, there's this kind of condemnation, a rush to help, but sometimes the help given is worse than the actual drug itself. So, so I wondered what you thought about um, the the business of of uh, recovery, basically. Absolutely. I think, I think that is a really important point to bring up. And I think one of the things that I've found as I've looked more deeply into the history and, and these contemporary debates is that there have been a lot of perverse incentives that are produced um, in the fact that, as you mentioned, there is a recovery industry. It, there is uh, a massive incentive, both financially and in terms of political and social power for people in positions of authority, whether it's medical authority or political authority or, um, you know, police officers to pursue certain strategies in ways that have actually, um, you know, really deviated from what the best practices actually are in terms of, of what the evidence would suggest for um, the most effective ways of treating people with drug um, with drug misuse disorders or helping people, uh, you know, maintain stability if they're going through something like that, as well as just the idea of, you know, the, the placement and scheduling of different categories, I think most people would come to recognize is, is pretty flawed. Um, and I think on top of that, the, the sort of court mandated uh, addiction and uh, counseling and treatment is also shown to be just another part of the punitive side of it. Um, and so we have a, an amazing amount of evidence about the um, neurological impacts of drugs. We have an amazing amount of evidence about how it impacts people, actual rates of addiction. But I think these perverse incentives that have to do with um, maintaining a certain industry, with maintaining a certain racial capitalism that not only maintains a, a racial hierarchy, but also allows for people to be able to extract value and exploit certain communities. Um, I think these things really distort 
our approach, even I think, as you mentioned, even when it comes to the side of, of treatment or the side of, you know, um, addiction and, and therapy or recovery kind of models. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we've seen throughout the history is that there's always been a, a moral panic. Uh, that moral panic has always been associated with uh, the maintenance of regimes of power. And that really gets in the way of real genuine harm reduction, real genuine um, building up of community resources and actually addressing some of the inherent issues and social problems that come along with with various types of substance use. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what I see from your book and having read your book and read around the subject quite intensively, um, where I see your book fitting in is, is at this point we're covering debates that have already been had, but where I see your book like sort of like really kind of coming into its own is, is, is how it discusses the role of the media around these issues, mm. you know? So what part do you think that the media plays in framing the debate around the war on drugs? I think, you know, one of the things that I was really influenced by to read this book is kind of a classic book by Stuart Hall and his colleagues policing uh, the crisis where, you know, he really laid out, um, along with his co-authors, a, a pretty early and, and super influential theory about the role that media plays in influencing debates. Um, and I think, you know, drawing on that, one of the things that that uh, that they discuss that really kind of uh, motivated me to think more deeply about the role of the media is that there is a structured relationship between powerful institutions and powerful actors and um, how the media presents things in terms of not only talking points, but um, in terms of even the idea of, of restricting something to a debate um, and how that can be um, pretty narrow oftentimes when we can talk about how complicated an issue is. Um, and so because of that, the, the voices of elites the voices of people who already have power tend to get amplified. Their interests tend to be normalized. And I saw this quite frequently in just looking at the overall debate itself, because a big part of my book is a large scale content analysis of newspaper articles and internet comments. So some of the things that I definitely noticed were that the issues were being framed in such a way that the, the things that really seemed to matter in terms of drug policy reforms were much less about issues of injustice and issues of, of harm reduction and much more about issues of how do we control criminality? How do we engage in correct types of social control? Particularly questions of like, how do we as a society control uh, marginalized people who are are seen as dangerous that are um, being associated with uh, the drug with the the black market of drug use, even though um, you know rates of drug use are the same across different racial and ethnic groups, and disproportionately people of of European origin, white people, have been the primary traffickers and and dealers of of drugs, despite the the stereotypes. So. The media really plays a big role in not only kind of structuring the debate itself, setting the terms of the debate, 
also assuming a, a given audience and, and what that audience cares about, but also the fact that the media is inherently going to be relying on people like police officers, politicians, and other people that have a pretty strong vested interest in getting quotes, in trying to seem objective. Um, and so those were kind of the things that really came through. Our, our drug policy debate, especially when we talk about some of these outcomes that don't match the best available evidence or that we can clearly see are flawed in some kind of way or are deeply harming communities, um, it's really this influence of the media on the debate itself that has really shrunk, I think, uh, a lot of people's um, imaginations about what's possible it has really limited people's understandings of, of the implications of drug reform and why it matters. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I've been working with policy organizations actually since the book came out, um, including the Drug Policy Alliance, and really emphasizing how people who are experts, researchers, can engage in agenda setting, meaning they're actually trying to push the media to cover and address certain issues rather than this approach that's often been taken where there's an assumption being made about what a given audience cares about, and then organizations try to tailor their message to that group. Um, and that's been fairly effective at some basic reforms, but basically abiding by the very limited terms of the debate, which is like, don't uh, talk too much about racial inequality and racial justice. Don't um, overly humanize people involved in either the uh, illicit economy of drug of drugs or drug users themselves. And essentially that a lot of the rhetoric should be around other things like controlling crime or raising tax revenue. Um, and I think, like I said, that has created some pretty um, not great outcomes. It's one of the reasons why even after certain states have legalized or decriminalized substances such as cannabis in the United States, there's still some pretty massive uh, inequalities in terms of who's arrested for things like public consumption or underage consumption. There's still massive disparities, even in like the legal cannabis industry. So like in Illinois, um, there's a massive legal cannabis industry and there's not a single marijuana dispensary in the state of Illinois that's currently owned by a person of color, for instance. So by avoiding some of these other conversations, by, by engaging in what I call in the book racial silence, um, it's obscuring a lot of the actual uh, information and it's obscuring a lot of the actual practices and policies that would address the underlying and root issues. Yeah, I mean, the debate around cannabis is really interesting, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. in, a, in a way, it's a kind of almost like a, a racial sifting of, of a population. So, you know, the, the, my understanding is that actually to buy legally grown cannabis is actually quite expensive. So there's a kind of cut off of who can, who can afford it. So it, in effect, removes, uh, you know, well-to-do white people from out, away from the clutches of the criminal justice system and it's quite interesting when you can compare sort of the um the the decriminalization of cannabis with the criminalization of say cat for example you know if like people if, if uh, listeners aren't familiar cat is basically um a 
you know, it's, it's a similar to caffeine type sense of euphoria that is, is um, widely used by people from, from the Horn of Africa. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, we have like sort of cannabis sort of like increasingly decriminalized. We have cat criminalized. And, you know, it's really interesting how that ties in with your concept of racial, um, racial silence. Absolutely. Um, And I think that is another really great example of this uh, distortion of, you know, we can we can paint. I mean, experts, people who study this. Um, you know, people who have a pretty deep understanding just from their connections to communities and struggles um, for the rights and humanity of people who are caught in the criminal legal system and people who are drug involved in some kind of way. Um, We can notice these connections. We can notice these disparities. We can notice, hey, there's a paradox here. There's an inconsistent logic being applied. Um, and without talking about these issues of racial injustice in the conversation, um, you really can't explain why. You really can't explain why there is such a difference between the available facts and the practices that are pursued, or why certain communities tend to be targeted, for instance. And so I think even, you know, I'm someone who really believes that, um, that the only answer is just reforming the policies themselves as in, you know, decriminalizing and legalizing. Obviously that's important because I think that, you know, like many people, the criminal legal system does a horrible job of um, actually addressing people who use drugs or, you know, even people who need help. Um, Obviously the threat of incarceration or losing your home and job is not a, a great context for helping anyone. But I think even on top of that, I think that we have to address in each society, you know, including the United States, including the UK, including a lot of other places that are now in um, increasingly instituting uh, sort of like liberalizing drug reforms. There also has to be an emphasis on addressing the immense harms that were done to various communities, the way that that drug policy has essentially been a tool for um, upholding um, both economic inequality and racial inequality and recognizing that uh, if we don't actually address the underlying myths uh, about who's using drugs and, and the underlying myths about Uh, you know, drug criminals versus drug addicts and all of these different stereotypes, um, it's really not going to actually address the underlying injustices. And just like you pointed out, it it basically is going to make it so that this two-tiered system of care and perhaps even like medicalization is going to only be available for certain classes of people and it will create a moving target whereby the, the war on drugs is going to continue, but it's just going to shift to other substances, other groups, um, and find other ways to morph and change as it has, you know, since uh, the very early days, you know, as it has for centuries, as we can trace back all of these different racialized moral panics around different substances like cocaine, cannabis, heroin. Um, and so that's what I think really needs to be addressed alongside um, you know, 
taking a more sort of rational approach to making sure that that there's not like a, a black market or making sure that that you know people have safe access to substances making sure that there um is harm reduction is also it has to be about dress addressing and having some reparations and having a broader conversation about decarceration so that we're not using uh the prison system or the legal system to try to address human rights issues or health issues or social problems that otherwise um, should be receiving a much different treatment. Yeah, I mean, again, um, I sort of think it's also really important for us as researchers to be reflective on what it is that we we're actually saying, because I remember being really struck a few years ago by the uh, uh, prof uh, Professor David Nutt. Okay, and the uh, his findings about the the harms that different drugs have, and um, he he did that really brilliant uh, sort of um, equation between uh, ecstasy and equine sports. So you're more likely to be killed by horse riding than you are by taking ecstasy. But in mm. the UK, ecstasy is a class A drug, which means that you can get a life sentence for. For, for for dealing in in this substance that's less dangerous than horse than horse riding, but at the same time, um, you know, again to go back to methadone, it's this kind of this this listing sort of um, street methadone as being more inherently dangerous than 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 methadone that, that's legally obtained. Whereas actually it's the same substance. So, you know, those sorts of points, we have them, we have that research, but we're not necessarily highlighting it, you know? And I just, um, I just sort of like, I was really interested in what you thought about a sort of a, a double, like we were talking about the double layer, but the, the, the effects of not really investigating what we think we know that even as as researchers mm -hmm. we have to be really reflective and you know that we have to be looking to the community that we actually study you know as well to get their, their impact on on the effects of drugs actually on the people that use them the most mm -hmm. you know and also as well that kind of like the separating the debate around addiction from from just regular drug use i mean i can't remember what the percentage was about people that use drugs on the weekend but it's a massive amount of drugs and most people don't use, use them in a totally unproblematic way mm -hmm. but it's very hard to kind of separate the discussion between uh, addiction and drug use yeah and uh, absolutely yeah absolutely i think i think these are definitely things that have become um that we've kind of they, they don't have a loud enough voice in the debate for the reasons that I talked about earlier about media framing and stereotypes. But also this is a trend that has gone on for a very long time as part and parcel of the war on drugs, as well as this racialized moral panic um, that I discussed. Because even as early as um, the 1940s in the United States, there were physicians and experts putting out reports, um, for instance, on cannabis saying, we've, we've looked at the bulk of the evidence. We uh, think that cannabis should not be uh, schedule one drug. And, you know, based on the evidence, it's not harmful in the same way that, um, you know, a lot of people might assume it doesn't lead to the same physical dependency issues as, as other substances. It, it, uh, 
doesn't necessarily lead to the use of other drugs uh, or other substances. And it's much more about these issues of morality and scapegoating and uh, creating a context where it's advantageous to, prep, to push for a certain law, particularly a certain law that's going to disproportionately impact marginalized groups and to try to control them and disenfranchise them than it is about looking at all of this evidence that's being accrued. Um, and this even reminds me of, of the fact that, um, you know, for a long time, I think this is maybe since the 60s or 70s, I know that, for instance, research on certain types of psychoactive substances was completely banned. So, you know, there are substances, um, particularly hallucinogens, that could have all kinds of benefits in terms of physical and mental health, in terms of, of therapy, in terms of all kinds of different uses and applications that are not being explored because of this kind of arbitrary classification system that has been shaped way more by racial politics and class politics than it has been by uh, actual empirical evidence. Um, and that's why I say, you know, in the book, that's why I think it's important to move from sociological knowledge to sociological mindfulness, because we've known these things for, for quite a long time. We, as in the, the community of experts and, and activists that really focus on this issue, um, but it's really a matter of thinking about what we can do to actually shift the terms of the debate, to push back on things that are empirically untrue, to um, really uh, try to engage in, in some organizing and consciousness raising, um, and to really try to reshape this conversation so that it includes all of these different concerns and issues that, that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, I was really, I was really so sort of blown away when I found out that that in the states, the the debate around cannabis was basically a protection for the sort of like the post uh, post um, sort of slavery era plant former plantocracy to you know to protect their profits now that they they you know they didn't have a slave labor force. So you know the the kind of legislation against hemp. Was in order to protect the the profits of the cotton the the cotton market was my understanding of it and mm -hmm. I was like, I was really sort of blown away by that that actually it was so cynical as to protect this racist this racist institution's profits after after the, the liberation of its its free labour force um, which kind of like sort of like leads me to the next the next point that I'd like to make where do you see yourself like advancing the uh, discussion that 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 Michelle Alexander started I think that Michelle Alexander has done a really great job of being a public scholar who has really put in stark terms that I think are extremely accessible that people can really dig their teeth into um, to understand the, these connections between racial oppression and drug policy. Um, so I think, you know, as, as a, an intellectual, as a scholar, I think, you know, obviously my work owes her a great debt. Um, and I think, you know, where my work really contributes to the conversation is thinking about uh, a much more large and holistic set of systems that are working in tandem. So 
connecting it to the media, connecting it to large scale patterns in representation, connecting it to, um, you know, all kinds of policies and, and historical legacies, connecting it to uh, perverse incentives to try to understand why um, the policies are what they are and why they're enforced in the way that they are. Um, you know, I tend to take a more sort of data-driven analytical approach when it comes to um, really sifting through, um, you know, not only newspapers, but also internet comments, just like, what is the, what do people, how do we talk about these issues? Um, because I think that does a lot to help explain the, the lack of progress we've made. And it also identifies if we can actually look at the shape of the debate itself and the terms of the conversation, that allows us to identify like strategic openings for change, potential opportunities for pushing back. Um, and so I, I've talked to so many people where that book uh, in particular has really opened their eyes to this issue. Um, and she does such an excellent job of telling those stories, connecting them to real lived people's experiences. Um, because this is, yeah, this is how I saw your book kind of like coming in. It's so it's okay. So Michelle Alexander sort of like raises raises like some of the issues, you know, names it, identifies it. But I think where your book comes in is that it it kind of points the reader to actually seeing just how insidious this is within, say, like the media and the press. Which which leads me to my next question, which is. Can you talk more about your methodology that you actually utilize? Because you 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 talked about um, you talked about newspapers and you mm -hmm. talked about um, sort of like the internet. But what what's the resources on the internet did you actually uh, research? Sure. Um, so essentially, I used this large database called LexisNexis. Um, I think a lot of people have access to it if, if you're associated with like a scholarly institution. It's a really great resource for all kinds of documents. And essentially what I did was I tried to get as large of a sample as I could um, of finding any type of newspaper communication going all the way back to the 80s, um, the early 80s. I found about 394 um, different pieces of newspaper media. So this is including op-eds, letters to the editor and news articles. Um, and basically what I engaged in is what's known as ethnographic content analysis. So I really did my coding by hand, which was a lot of work, but it really allowed me to just go through and just read all of this information and, and try to identify the major patterns and themes. And I coded just about every single argument I saw that was um, making a claim uh, critical of the war on drugs in this entire uh, huge data set. Um, and that really allowed me to get a scope of like the really big picture. And not only that, but how often are certain ideas and concepts um, being discussed? What are some of the overall trends and themes? What are the things that people tend to, to talk about when they're making these arguments? And then on top of that, I wanted to understand this concept of resonance, which, you know, in sociology and cultural studies is kind of the idea of how do audiences respond to a cultural object like a newspaper article? Um, and obviously I wasn't going to build a time machine 
and you know travel all around the world and try to interview anyone who's ever read one of these newspaper articles. So instead, I did the next best thing, which was just to pull uh, comment sections. The comment section data is obviously a little more contemporary, but it did give me a really good lens into you know, when certain arguments or claims are being made, how is it that other people in the audience of a particular uh, piece of media, how do they respond to those claims? And so in order to do that, I collected about 3,145 comments. I drew from a wide range of websites. Obviously, some websites have really active comment sections, some less so. But um, I tried to get a really wide range of publications. Um, any comment section I could find that was on an article about the war on drugs. I would definitely not recommend reading uh, 3,000 internet comments to anyone. Um, but it was pretty impactful in terms of, you know, understanding not just the media content, but how it's received. So, for instance, I'll, I'll kind of give you an example of something that it allowed me to understand is that in a lot of the news media um, content about the war on drugs, oftentimes what was emphasized is that there's disparities in rates of arrest and incarceration for drug crimes. So, um, you know, Black and Latino uh, men in particular are more likely to be arrested and incarcerated than their white counterparts. This is kind of an often claimed point that there's this big disparity. And oftentimes, there was a reticence in those articles to talk about anything regarding systemic racism, um, structural inequalities, or discrimination. And what that meant is that audience members then would use uh, racist stereotypes about the demographics of drug users and uh, drug dealers and um, traffickers to interpret those numbers to be the result of not any kind of uh, injustice within the legal system, but to be a result of um, who is committing drug crimes. And so I, I was starting to notice these patterns of misconception and, and patterns of racial meaning by looking at both the newspaper content itself and looking at the comments. Um, another thing that I was able to do that was fascinating is because I had such a wide span of time, um, I actually was able to look at any trends over time. You know, is there a certain period where there's a certain uptick in people making a certain argument? And one of the things that I think was most surprising to me is that the patterns and themes that I found, which, you know, was this idea of racial silence as well as an overall focus on the idea that the war on drugs has failed and oftentimes implying that it has failed because it hasn't done enough to uh, control marginalized racial groups. Um, those two themes, the theme of racial, uh, discussions of racial justice and inequality being the least common and discussions about you know, what I call the functionality frame being the most common those were true across time. Um, and so just seeing, like, I think a lot of us want to think about progress and change, but I think a lot of times our public debates do become very stagnant and it's only through identifying those trends and themes and unpacking them that we can actually start to understand, you know, 
how things actually can be effectively uh, changed, how we can have a more informed and, and better uh, debate and a more informed and better set of policies. Mm. It's quite it's quite interesting because I wondered sort of like the impact that say uh, uh, sort of data analysis of newspapers had on actually your your data set because you know sort of a newspaper readers tend to be demographically older don't they you know sort of younger people tend to use different types of like media and mm -hmm. I wondered what social media you'd included in your your um, your search as well. Um, so I didn't do a lot with social media sites in terms of, um, you know, the major social media sites. Um, essentially, the database that I used for the newspapers was included um, online newspapers at a certain point. So it was newspapers that had been digitized in the past. Um, so like, you know, there are obviously um, major newspapers and a lot of local newspapers have digitized their archives. As well as at a certain point, I want to say around maybe the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, increasingly everything was digital. So these were the types of articles that, you know, especially in the more contemporary side of my database would have been shared online. Um, I'm definitely interested in looking more at social media discourse. Yeah. Um, that could definitely be a potentially next project. Um, yeah, you know, because I'm I think... Sure yeah, Twitter, Twitter would be amazing for this because it's that much more reactive as well, isn't it? But even that has its limitations, doesn't it? Because who actually uses Twitter? <laughs> it used to be it's always, it's always academics and sex Absolutely. workers use, use Twitter. So, so yeah, I mean, I was thinking, as I've been talking to you, I was thinking, you know, how would I do that? And, you know, mm -hmm. what sort of like, what sort of media outlets do, do, do kids utilize, like young people utilize? I'm thinking about my own children and it's all Instagram and Snapchat. How how would you analyze that? Because it's such a private um, sort of get sort of uh, way of engagement. It's actually much it's much harder to do than you would initially think. I mean, you know, I, I understand. What, yeah, yeah. I would I, I would like that comparison between newspapers and Twitter, though. I think that would make an, in, an interesting comparison. I, yeah, I agree. I think another thing that's really interesting about social media is the algorithms that are determining what shows up in our feeds and how that can have a lot of bias embedded in it. So for instance, I know that for instance, um, white people in the United States are extremely unlikely um, to engage with or even have it come into their social media feeds maybe uh, prior to this summer where there was a little bit more active engagement because of, of the um, killings of, of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and, and increased awareness. But I, I think um, overall, you know, there are these patterns that we can discern that kind of, I would assume sort of parallel because based on what you put out there and what the social media company knows about you and based about uh, on their very internal metrics, it's really going to be shaping what people see. So you can get, go into a deep dive into a community of activists and, you know, people who are in favor of decarceration and, and ending the drug war and racial justice. And that would give you a totally different snapshot than if you were to follow, let's say, you know, the DEA or, you know, um, police officers or, you know, certain politicians, um, you know, so 
the way that we're creating all of these sort of parallel, more fragmented conversations, I think is really fascinating as well. So yeah, I think I would love, you know, if people could could start to look at that and map it out, but it that is uh that is a whole that's a whole nother project and and um you know maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> when she starts it doesn't stop so i i was really struck by this phrase that i heard you um that, that i saw that you used and it says identities constructed in the heat of debate uh, is a unique contribution that this book um makes mm -hmm. Can you talk through that? absolutely so one of the things that i definitely um, began to understand the more that I analyzed the data and the more that I kind of put it in, in a context of, um, you know, everything I was reading, sociological theory, um, particularly drawing on, on a lot of the tradition of uh, cultural studies that comes out of the UK as well, and, and that school of media analysis. Um, I, I really started to understand that particularly when it comes to uh, internet comments, a lot of people are not just engaging with these debates and conversations as a way of better understanding the issues, but as a way of expressing and constructing a particular identity, meaning this is what it means to be me. Oftentimes it's an identity that's core, that is politicized or racialized in some kind of way. So there were a lot of comments that kind of had this implicit sense of this is this is the group that I'm a part of, and this is what it means to be part of this group. So there were a lot of of comments, for instance, that conflated whiteness with morality or innocence. Um, and I also noticed that um, there's another scholar named um, Jan During, and and basically one of the things he talked about is that debates are oftentimes battlegrounds for identity. And that really got me thinking about this debate that people are really hashing out a lot of claims about um, their own subject positions. So, you know, they're taking a stance on a particular issue, but that's also giving them a position from which to view the world and to identify with, which is a big part of how people are constructing a sense of who they are. And I think that's also why a lot of these debates tend to be less focused on the empirical evidence and much more focused about, um, you know, people's strongly held beliefs, because I think that there are a lot of people who have a, an investment, an ontological investment, an investment in the idea of what it means to be who, who they are and what their place in the world means, that is really going to distort their ability to recognize systemic injustices to recognize even, you know, if, if there's extremely compelling evidence of injustice and unharms being done because it simply doesn't fit with the sense of identity and the meaning making that they have. Um, and so that's why actually in the, in the conclusion of the book, one of the things that I really encourage readers to do, and I give some, some concepts and toolkits for this, is rethinking these concepts like identity and particularly its relationship with things like morality. Um, how much the ideas we have about being a good and bad person. Um, these moral concepts can really muddy the waters when it comes to actually addressing um, some, some problems and issues um, and having a debate that's actually focused on um, what we know, how things are impacting people, humanizing all the people involved, 
trying to be curious and interested. That's why I, you know, it oftentimes um, it feels like it's much more about people reasserting their positions. And it oftentimes feels like an argument more so than a conversation. Um, and that's something I definitely noticed. I think that is somewhat unique to internet culture and, and how people kind of engage. Um, but I also think it broadly influences um, our ability to come to a more meaningful consensus based on um, social facts, sociological knowledge, um, real evidence. Yeah, I, I really like in your conclusion, I sort of like pick something out. Um, you you um, you invite the reader to discuss to challenge common sense myth about the war on drugs yeah, and about drug use. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you discuss uh, how people can do this? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that really inspired me um, as I was kind of thinking through and writing this book is there is a uh, really important work by a sociologist named Patricia Hill Collins, where she talks about the black, uh, the black feminist tradition of activism and intellectualism. And one of the things that she emphasizes is this process of self-definition as a source of liberation that people who have been defined by negative stereotypes or controlling images, just the mere practice of defining yourself on your own terms can be extremely liberating and impactful and empowering. And what I wanna challenge readers to do is to, regardless of whether or not they're part of a marginalized community or a community that's disenfranchised by the policies and practices that I'm discussing in the book, to engage in a process of, of pushing back. What that means is being willing to engage in certain uh, levels of, co of conflict. It means being very uh, careful and vigilant about the types of narratives that are being repeated and consumed. And it means essentially a lot of these myths that um, we've been discussing even in our conversation are things that to a lot of people appear as common sense, which is why I call them common sense myths. So it means being willing to kind of actually deconstruct those things. Like, wait a second, is that actually true? Um, and I think that's actually what, what really matters and what it takes. And to try to push in our day-to-day decision-making in our political engagement, in even, you know, even like I said, conversations with friends and families members um, to push back against those things and to assert um, the humanity of, of people involved in, in these systems, to strongly assert and act from a place of empathy and understanding, and also to actually understand the mechanisms and processes that are creating so much harm and oppression to actually name those things. Yeah, um, challenge hegemony every opportunity you get, basically. Absolutely. I mean, that probably makes it so, uh, I think that, that that can kind of erode some of those assumptions. And definitely um, Gramsci's concept of hegemony is another big influence. And, and, you know, and I think about, you know, conversations that I've had with friends and family members in the past and how much before I really started doing this work and this research, 
there were probably a lot of things that I was taking for granted or make, or, you know, I had some common sense myths. So it's not even to say that um, there's anything necessarily like evil or bad about it, but that um, challenging it and encouraging people to not take certain things for granted is a really effective strategy. Um, but also, like I said, when we're thinking about policy, when we're thinking about political engagement to really um, take seriously what we know is true about uh, these policies and how they're impacting people. My final question is going to be this. So what did you learn um, when you were writing the book? Well, I think one of the things that I learned is just how much work goes into writing a book uh, off the bat. I have an extreme respect for authors. Um, I'd always wanted to write a book when I was younger. Like I thought that that would be a really cool thing to do. Um, but I think one of the things that I realized is just how much I didn't know when I started out. And one of the things that I learned is that the best way to write a book and to be a good author and to um, really come up with something that feels like a unique contribution is you just have to do a lot of reading and a lot of engagement. And most of the work that is done to put uh, books together, particularly books that are um, research-based is largely invisible labor that has nothing to do with the actual writing. Um, and so I think a big thing that I learned is just how grateful I am to be part of um, a community with a lot of activists and scholars and other people who um, have really pushed me and encouraged me, even if it was just reading their work um, or having conversations with them or engaging with what they're doing to think further and deeper. So like, I think one thing that I figured out is being an expert kind of means that you're very willing to learn and keep learning and growing. Um, and I think that's a position that I try to advance in the book. And it's something that I've tried to apply to my scholarly life as I'm kind of um, continuing to teach and, and do research. Excellent. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. So can you just remind the listeners of the name of your book and, sure. and the author? Yeah, so I'm Michael Rosino. Uh, the name of the book is Debating the Drug War. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Rosino. My website is michaelrosino.com. So I'm fortunate enough to have a not super common name so I could grab those. Yeah, and I, I'm really excited to hear what people think about the book. I'm excited to have it out. And thanks for having me.